Welcome back to The Health Beat. podcast created by medical students that take the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Thomas Lay. And I'm Allie Burgess. Today we'll be talking about the controversial Texas abortion law, also known as the Heartbeat Act, with one of our professors and faculty members, Dr. Jennifer Robinson. Emphasis on controversial, Allie. Definitely. I mean, I think most of the conversations I've had are probably within echo chambers because everyone I talk to about this law is kind of shocked. I mean, I think that's, it's good to upfront say that the medical establishment has a particular viewpoint on this law that we're going to talk about. And it's largely established from practice experience and medical knowledge, right? I think that's, that's an important thing to clarify before we kind of dive deep into this. Definitely. And and I think that even in ways that we're not completely aware of, our preconceived notions and all of the interactions that we've had in the medical sphere inform what we think about this law and how it will impact people we know and patients that we might see, really. Exactly, yeah. And so, and so for the listeners out there, just to, just to give a brief summary of what we're talking about, we're recording this podcast shortly after recent news as of September 1st, 2021, there's a law passed that abortion is prohibited in Texas once a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which can be as early as six weeks into a woman's pregnancy. And it's called the Texas Heartbeat Act, and it's enacted by the Republican-controlled 87th Texas legislator during its regular session. And essentially, according to this law, private citizens, which we'll get into later, can sue anyone who performs an abortion or aids and abets a procedure. So really having private citizens be able to affect change and affect really who is culpable when women get abortions is what makes this pretty scary. Yeah, and I, I think this this podcast is really timely because, and we talk about this, this idea a lot that before starting medical school, there was just so many just medical topics that we had never heard of, or sorry, I take that back, we had had heard of but we just didn't really know much about, like you're watching the advertisements for rheumatoid arthritis and you're like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> like, it sounds bad. There are, there are people in pain on TV and, and something similar for abortion. I mean, conceptually you understand what it is, but I think like when you go into the science and the medicine behind it, you realize it's, it's something a little bit different all together. So, and you know, who will provide guidance on all this is Dr. Jennifer Robinson. (laughs) She's an OBGYN trained physician and the Johns Hopkins medical director of the Hopkins Center for Family Planning. Her job involves providing complex contraception and abortion services to women from Maryland and neighboring states. She is also the Selective Director for Family Planning as part of the Medical School's Women Health Clerkship and is one of the course directors for the Genes to Society Reproductive Sciences Block in the School of Medicine. So in other words, she was someone who taught us everything we know about women's health. Absolutely. So we're really excited to have her here today. Thank you so much for talking with us, Dr. Robinson. Well, thank you all for having me. Yeah, so I'd like to let all the listeners know that actually I have fond memories with you, Dr. Robinson, because we spent 
a couple days together on L&D and you were like the nicest, most like <laughs> understanding, calm, like presence. And you were so, I just had no idea what was going on. And you were so persistent and like trying to teach me things. And I just remember thinking like, wow, medical school is hard, but you, you made it a little bit easier. So really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thanks, Thomas. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you had a good experience on it. <laughs> <laughs> so before we begin, Dr. Robinson, I was hoping to ask you, like, how did you get involved in like family planning? Like what actually is family planning? It's a funny story to me now looking back on, on my career. I did not know that I wanted to be an OBGYN when I started medical school. So that discovery was a surprise. But once I decided on OBGYN, then sort of assumed that I would learn how to do abortions as part of my OBGYN training. So I chose a residency program that would give me that training. And as I got further and further along, I realized this was an aspect of women's healthcare that I wanted to know more. So after my OBGYN residency, I applied for and got into a complex family planning fellowship. So I did extra training in learning how to do more advanced and more complicated abortions, and then also provide contraceptive care to women who maybe have medical conditions or other complexities in their lives that make the decision for how to prevent pregnancy a little bit more challenging. And as I've been in practice, what I've really grown to appreciate as a skill set that comes with the training in complex family planning is you really get comfortable helping people navigate some really difficult times in their lives. And I think that's been helpful for me in how I interact with patients, not only in the realm of abortion decision-making, but even in helping people through, you know, experiencing pregnancy loss, experiencing infertility and wanting to get pregnant, but having a hard time, we, we get really, you get a lot of experience in this field of just helping people through uncomfortable situations that can bring up a lot of emotions. And that's one of the really rewarding parts of the work that I do. Wow. Yeah, I think I think you know, like the patient provider relationship that you're describing is is so meaningful because a lot of times you're really dealing with the main problem or issue that is consuming someone's life and so being able to provide relief and a person to talk to and empathy in that situation that is is very distressing is it seems very rewarding. Yeah. And even, you know, just, just being able to offer a space for people to express what they think without judgment. Mm, absolutely. Which is so rare in, in this current day and age. Yeah. So before we get into the specifics of the law, I think it'd be helpful for our audience to break down some definitions and basics surrounding abortion in the medical field. So maybe you could tell us just first off, what's the difference between a spontaneous and an elective abortion? Sure. Before I, I get into that, I do want to make the disclaimer that while I work at Johns Hopkins, I don't speak on behalf of Johns Hopkins. So anything I say here is just representing only myself. And then the other thing I would say about the question, which is a great one, I'm going to push back a little bit on the use of the term elective. And I'll explain why in a second. I think the first, the earliest definition or the, the easiest definition to start with is what's a spontaneous abortion. And that is generally what describes a pregnancy that ends without any sort of intervention. It just stops developing. They're incredibly common. A more common terminology that most people are probably familiar with is a miscarriage. And that's a synonym for a spontaneous abortion. You know, they happen very frequently in the first trimester and most of the time because of some kind of developmental or chromosomal problem and not because of any action or inaction that the pregnant person took. 
The other type of abortion that we're talking about, I would prefer preferentially describe as an induced abortion. And that definition is a pregnancy that ends before the point of fetal viability based on some intervention. So for instance, you know, a person could take medication that would end the pregnancy intentionally or undergo a procedure. The difficulty with the, the term elective is it introduces an element of judgment into the reason for the abortion, whereas some reasons are considered more acceptable than others. So some are medically indicated or elective, whereas I think the term induced abortion is a little bit more broad and includes all of those different things without implying any of that judgment. Gotcha. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of point out that the words we use to describe these things are really important to what is being implicated for the actual person on the other side of things. Yeah, the words matter. Our words matter, everyone. And kind of on the same sort of line, like what are the different types of induced abortions? Yeah, so the, the two sort of broad categories of induced abortions, they can be described as either medical or medication managed or surgical or procedural. These are both prescription medications. Mifepristone has some interesting restrictions imposed upon it in the sense that you don't write a prescription and someone fills it at a pharmacy. It's a medicine that actually has to be dispensed and taken in an office setting, although that has shifted a little bit during the pandemic, whereas mesoprostol is something that a person can go pick up at a pharmacy. Medication abortion is generally available through the 11th week of pregnancy. And then the other alternative are procedural or surgical abortions. So that's when somebody undergoes a procedure to remove the pregnancy. And that can happen in the first and or even second trimesters. Um, when it happens early on, it's described as a dilation and curatage or a DNC. And when it happens a little later in pregnancy, it's called a, a dilation and evacuation or DNE. And there's also actually another subset of abortions that are called induction terminations or induction abortion. And that's where somebody who may be in the second trimester goes through a process that's very similar to a birth, so a labor induction, and then they will deliver that pregnancy without needing a surgery. And is the choice to go through one modality versus the other, is it personal? Is it a medical decision? Yeah, it depends on the individual. The, the decision of what kind of abortion to have, to some degree, is dictated by where in the pregnancy a person is. So for instance, you know, if somebody is 16 weeks pregnant, for the most part, those abortions are happening by a procedure as opposed to a medication abortion. But there are definitely medical reasons why we might counsel somebody preferentially towards one or the other based on safety concerns. Certainly the decision about what type of abortion to have is one that is very preference sensitive, meaning mm -hmm. that the importance or the desires of the person who's going through the abortion really inform the choice of, of which modality to use. I see. And, you know, we're, we're really fortunate because I think like in the discussion in the media today around this, people have a lot of opinions about this, but not a lot of people are involved in this whole decision-making and we're so lucky to have you. And so kind of on the same sort of lines, like what do you think have been your patients' main concerns, whether medical or social or just their thought process around getting abortion? So I'm gonna ask a clarifying question, which is mm -hmm. do you mean about the decision to have an abortion or, or their concerns related to the abortion process? I think both would be really okay. interesting to know, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the reasons vary for the reasons why somebody seeks an abortion. So I work at a hospital-based abortion clinic, which is actually a minority of sites where people can access abortion services. The majority of abortions in the United States are provided by independent 
abortion providers, clinics like Planned Parenthood or Whole Women's Health, whereas hospital-based abortion services also exist and tend to take care of women who are facing pregnancies that are complicated by, by various conditions, whether that's fetal diagnoses or maternal conditions that would make continuation of the pregnancy challenging. But certainly we take care of patients who are healthy and having normally developing pregnancies and, and they have reasons for why this is not the right time for them. So the decisions for why people have abortions, sometimes it's a medication or a medical reason. So, you know, if somebody has a health condition that would severely affect the pregnancy or the pregnancy might actually lead to negative health consequences for the pregnant person. There may be a fetal diagnosis. You know, there could be genetic abnormalities or developmental abnormalities that can be detected by various types of tests that people access during pregnancy. And couples may decide that they, they don't want to continue a pregnancy that's going to uh, potentially end in, you know, a very sick or uh, very sick child or, or a child that's not going to survive for very long. There's also social reasons. You know, a lot of people feel that they are not financially able to take care of a child or another child, you know, respecting the fact that a lot of people who choose abortion have other kids. And the decision about ending their current pregnancy is really a way for them to take the best care they can of the rest of their family. Sometimes we see patients who are pregnant as the result of sexual assault mm -hmm. and the continuation of the pregnancy would be a really traumatic experience for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the common thread I'm hearing through all your answers and I'd like to reiterate to everyone listening is that it's a personal decision. It's so personal. It's so different for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, for some people, it's a, it's a very straightforward decision. You know, I think sometimes we talk about abortion as a really hard decision or a sad decision. And certainly it is for some people, but for some people, it's actually a very easy decision. You know, they, for whatever reason, found themselves to be pregnant and they know with a hundred percent certainty that this is not right for them and they have their abortion and move on with their lives. And, and that's fine. Absolutely. So that kind of ties into, I think there are a lot of preconceived notions that people have about abortion, either from the media and certain health aspects of it that maybe you could debunk for us if they are in fact myths. So the first one is that some people generally think that abortions are dangerous to the woman that is getting the abortion. And what is your take on that? And kind of what do you advise as, as a provider in this setting? So I think that's a, a good one to start with because, you know, this, the idea of danger or safety is in some ways really relative. So abortion as a, as a medical intervention is incredibly safe. The likelihood of having a serious complication that would require a hospital stay or another surgery, or even a blood transfusion, which are serious outcomes, is really low. Less than 1% of abortions are complicated by things like that. And the other thing to, to consider is, you know, what is the danger or risk of the alternative? You know, if you compare mortality related to abortion to the mortality related to childbirth, abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth. So childbirth in and of itself is not a risk-free proposition. Wow. And yet we don't question people's decisions to have kids sure. from the question of, is this a safe idea? Yeah, there's a stigma. And I guess everyone knows there's a stigma, but this is definitely a good example of where that stigma comes into play, for sure. And on a similar train of logic there is, is this fact or fiction, abortions lead to infertility, ectopic pregnancy, breast cancer, all these scary things people are afraid of. 
Yeah, this is this is one that patients bring up a lot as well, because a lot of times when people are are having an abortion, you know, this isn't the last time they want to be pregnant necessarily. So they're worried about does this is this going to have any sort of impact on their ability to get pregnant in the future? And overall, the answer is is abortion does not increase the risk of any of those other outcomes. So it does not impair a person's ability to get pregnant again. It does not increase the risk of ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage. And there's good data that there is no link between having an induced abortion and the ultimate development of breast cancer. You know, that's one of those things that has been um, talked about a lot because there are some states that require certain types of counseling for women who are choosing abortion, including Physicians who provide abortion services are required by the state to make statements like abortion could cause breast cancer, even though there's no data to support. So it's a way in some ways for the stigma to be you know, furthered by parties mm-hmm. who think that abortion should be restricted. Which is very disheartening because, I mean, this whole podcast and like our goal, me and Thomas, is to further evidence-based medicine, you as well, Dr. Robinson, and the fact that evidence-based medicine isn't really driving these decisions is disheartening. Yeah, actually the the National Academy of Sciences published uh, this really thorough overarching review of the safety of abortion in the United States a few years ago and found, you know, that the evidence really is profound and overwhelming that abortion is safe in a variety of environments and a variety of circumstances. That's great to hear with resounding certainty. So another question that kind of relates to ultimately to the Texas abortion law that we'll talk about later, but in general is that, you know, women are always in control of whether or not they get pregnant and contraception is a hundred percent available and foolproof and oh yeah, right. And always yeah. consent to sex always. and always. You know, women have complete control over that. We always get a pick, you know, it's that like, process. I want to get pregnant now. Like, <laughs> damn. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. That is unfortunately also very much a myth. There's so much about human biology and particularly fertility that is outside of our control. And and sometimes despite our best efforts. So the question about, or the the statement that, well, birth control works all the time, I mean, is, is unfortunately not true. Modern birth control methods are very effective. So when they're compared to, you know, couples who are having unprotected sex, what's the likelihood of pregnancy there? It's actually about 85% in a year. And when you start adding modern contraceptive methods, that level falls significantly, but particularly for methods like the birth control pill, which is one of the most common ones used, there's a difference between how well the pill works in a research setting when people are getting frequent reminders to take their pill every day and someone's checking in with them every month to see if they're, you know, if they've taken a pregnancy test or anything. And then what's called typical use, which is the messy and occasionally inaccurate way that most humans go about their lives, meaning that Sometimes people forget a pill or they take it late or they get sick and they can't take it for a few days. Sure. So the typical use failure rate of the birth control pill is actually 7%. So that means seven out of a hundred women using the birth control pill, as most people do it, which is imperfectly, will have a pregnancy that they were not interested in. Which is pretty shocking since a lot of people seem to rely on oral contraceptive pills to prevent pregnancy. But even even the most effective birth control methods also have a failure rate. And so even people who choose things like IUDs and implants where the failure rate is lower than 1%, 
or couples who choose permanent contraception. So people who've had their tubes tied or undergone a vasectomy, those methods even aren't 100% perfect. So despite people trying really, really hard to avoid pregnancy, sometimes pregnancies still happen. And I'm glad you also brought up the circumstances of non-consensual sex. That's an unfortunate reality for some people. And sometimes that also leads to pregnancy. Yeah. And I, I think you were also alluding to this in your earlier response, but is this fact or fiction? Abortion causes long lasting emotional mental harm. Oh, that is definitely a fiction. There, you know, again, this is one of the arguments for people who want to limit abortion is that abortion is somehow harmful to women. And it's a difficult thing to study, you might imagine, but there was actually a really beautifully designed study called the Turnaway, which was conducted at abortion clinics throughout the country and enrolled women who were at or just beyond the state or clinic limit for abortion services, and then followed those women forward in time to find out what happened to them. You know, did they travel to a different state and obtain an abortion, or did they ultimately continue that pregnancy, and then what happened after they gave birth? And the study found that women who were able to access abortion had better mental health and economic and social outcomes compared to women who were not able to access an abortion that they wanted. So I think that's a, it's a really interesting finding. You know, women often express a number of emotions when they're facing an abortion. So it's not one experience. And so while some people will express sadness or disappointment about the circumstances of their lives that led them to consider abortion, after the fact, most women feel some sense of relief and then again, go on to continue their lives. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just seems like the general discourse around abortion makes it seem like this traumatic thing that women wrestle with. But mm -hmm. it's really interesting here from your firsthand experience that that's not the case for everyone. It can be and it can be difficult. Sure. But it seems like it, it's not, not really for everyone. And we're just kind of slapping that label on all abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we sometimes have this expectation that it should be difficult. And when it isn't, then people There's are even confused. a judgment on that. <laughs> absolutely. But I have to say, you know, I'm I'm so surprised sometimes when patients who come to our service and and have an abortion, whether or not it, the decision was difficult for them, very often at the end, like when they're being discharged from our care, they say, this was better than I expected. So I think wow. sometimes too, women come into choosing an abortion and, and going through the process and they expect it to be a lot more difficult than it ultimately turns out to be. Now, again, that's not everybody's experience, but certainly people come in with their own expectations and sometimes it's not as bad as they were thinking it was going to be. Right. Wow. And I think it kind of comes back to, you know, emphasizing that it is a personal choice for a woman and at least if, if the woman is able to make the choice for herself, that in and of, of itself can be the relieving portion that it was, it was something personal to her and, you know, pursued in a way that made her feel better about the whole situation. Yeah. It's a way of exercising bodily autonomy and just autonomy in the course of one's life. Oh my Absolutely. gosh. Bodily Bodily autonomy. That sounds so contrary to <laughs> this Texas abortion law which oh. according to this law, private citizens can sue anyone who performs an abortion or aids and abets a procedure. And so speaking of autonomy, how do you think that this law will change practice in the state of Texas? 
Well, I think already it's changed practice in the sense that it has made abortion widely unavailable throughout the state. So you know, the, the, the law prohibits abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy or after the time when fetal cardiac activity is detectable by ultrasound, which is a really arbitrary landmark within pregnancy. You know, it's something that we have the technological capability to detect now with ultrasounds. But in terms of the predictive meaning of detecting cardiac activity for what the outcome of the pregnancy will be, it's really not that important a piece of information. And the six-week time point is really challenging, right? Because a lot of people aren't even going to recognize that they're pregnant until then or shortly after that point in pregnancy. So what I think this law is likely to do, for one, it's going to make abortion unavailable for the majority of people who might seek abortion. And that's going to lead people to have to try and leave the state in order to access abortion services. And so in order to go to another state, remember, Texas is a really big state, <laughs> um, so people might have to travel really far. Yeah. Uh, that's going to require resources. So like so many abortion restrictions, this is going to disproportionately affect women of lower incomes and women who have less, less resources to deploy for this, whereas wealthy people, they're going to have access with not as, not as much hardship. Which is just very unfortunate. And kind of going back to the six week time point, what do you think the, the decision-making behind that, that threshold was in terms of why six weeks? Why, yeah, why that as opposed to just an outright abortion ban? Sure. I don't know. I suspect that an outright ban would have been less palatable to more people because, you know, surveys of broad swaths of the American public generally find that the majority of Americans are supportive of access to abortion. Now, I think for most people, abortion is a very abstract thing, right? Like it's a it's a political issue and it's a, a stigmatized aspect of healthcare. But until somebody is personally affected or knows somebody who is personally affected, it really kind of exists out there in the world and is separate from the, the details of their day-to-day -day life. So, I, But I think still that people would have reacted a lot more loudly and with greater concern if it had been just a full-stop ban on all abortion. That's my own opinion. Sure, sure. That, that that makes a lot of sense to me, at least. And then I think the emotional fact, you know, it's it's termed the heartbeat law and visualizing a heartbeat. But you mentioned that that is also kind of arbitrary in the fact that technology has improved over the last many years. And so the the technology that we associate six weeks with a heartbeat is not necessarily like the true heartbeat that we actually think of as the lay public. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a finding that you can see on an ultrasound. And yes, there is an early structure there, myocyte cells, and they have electricity in them, and they move in a specific way. But at six weeks, you know, the embryo is so early in its development that yeah, it's, it's something that happens, but I don't think it's necessarily a meaningful landmark for a lot of people. But it's described in this very evocative terminology, because it's intended to make people feel a certain way about abortions that happen after this point in pregnancy. Even though the experience of an abortion at seven weeks compared to six weeks is not really different. Hmm. And women may discover that they're pregnant after that six-week point after conception. Can you kind of explain to the audience why this may be? Because it might not be clear, you know, why one woman might not 
discover that she's pregnant until after six weeks. Yeah. So in, in this law, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but I did actually read the t- most of the text of the law. Which, so uh, as to aside, not a lot of people probably have. So that, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> brownie points to you, to be honest. Well, this is one of the interesting aspects of working in abortion care is you find yourself reading a lot more legal documents and thinking a lot more about <laughs> how laws are written because it may directly affect how I practice medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the law prohibits abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy, and that's dated based on the person's last menstrual period. So, you know, the, the first day that they have bleeding for a period, that's, that's day one, and then we count forward. And so typically, if somebody has regular menstrual cycles where they have a period every month, you know, they have their, their episode of bleeding, and then they don't expect another one for another four weeks. And so, you know, at that fourth week, their period's a little bit late. Most people are probably like, well, maybe my, this is just a little off this month. Let me, let me hold off on panicking or checking a pregnancy test because sometimes periods fluctuate. But so then they might not test for a pregnancy until the fifth week. And then they're getting really close to that six week barrier. And I mean, I've heard stories and I, I always can't believe it, but I've heard stories of women who go to the ER and they're like, oh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm nauseous. I've been feeling sick every day, wake up in the morning. And then you discover they're like super pregnant, right? And it's, it's apparently not uncommon. And so just the fact that some people can just not even awa- be aware that they're pregnant makes this six week like deadlines seem so arbitrary. Yeah, it's it's completely arbitrary. And you know, there's no safety difference. That's one of the again, one of the big arguments that has been forwarded for reasons to restrict abortion access. There's no safety difference in an abortion that happens before six weeks and after six. But you're right. Some people just they don't figure it out until fairly later, late in the pregnancy. Is there a safety difference later on? Like, you know, if is there an, another time point that makes sense medically? Well, I wouldn't say that there's a time where the, the risk of an abortion would, would lead me to think that the, the abortion should be restricted. Again, sure. this gets back to the conversation of, you know, what's risky driving <laughs> to a doctor's appointment, right? There's a, a risk of getting into a car accident. And oh, that's yeah. a risk that we assume the minute we walk out of our own, out of our doors. Oh my um, God. <laughs> but, you know, the risk does increase as the pregnancy increases. So a second trimester abortion does have a higher complication rate than a first trimester abortion, even though overall they are both but this is one of the, the real downsides to laws that restrict access to abortion is they often delay people be, being able to access care. So if somebody's figured out that they're pregnant, but now they need to travel to another state, they need to raise funds and take time off work and figure out who's going to take care of their kids. All of that takes time. By the time they then get to somewhere that they can get an abortion, they're later in the pregnancy and the risk is different this almost necessitates someone to have a higher risk by making them, you know, jump through all of these hoops in order to make it to a different state and be in a place where they can safely get an abortion. Absolutely. Which is counter to, you know, what a lot of people think the purpose of the law is for safety. What? Yeah. Ali, what? what? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. I don't understand the law, but here we are. Oh, yeah. And here we are. And we have been talking about how this law affects personal decision making and kind of how we practice medicine, how you practice medicine 
Dr. Robinson. And so like, can you comment a little bit how you think this law will impact how healthcare providers can discuss and provide advice regarding abortions? I think that's something that a lot of people are really uncertain about. So, you know, with the way the law is written that some random person, again, you know, it doesn't have to be anybody who has any relationship or knowledge of the person having the abortion, but they can sue anybody who aids and abets the abortion. So that could be somebody who counsels the pregnant person that abortion exists and here's how to access it, which really has a chilling effect on the doctor-patient relationship. Right. Like if I'm if I'm talking to somebody and I'm worried that I might end up being sued because of the information I provided accurate, you know, appropriate information, that's a real interference in how I get to interact with my patient. So I think a lot of people are worried that this that, that this is something that could happen to them if they're practicing in Texas. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that comes from the provider side of things, but also the patient side of things in that, you know, if you're worried from a provider perspective on the legality of what you're doing and, and your interactions. I'm sure from the patient side of things, they're also worried about everyone that they're interacting with on the journey of potentially getting an abortion. Any person that has some possible connection, which is really scary and very isolating as well. Yeah, it's interesting that the patient is not somebody who can be sued under this law, but presumably their partner is. So, you know, pregnancy doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, and a lot of times it's couples making decisions together. But, you know, a, a partner who's supportive of someone having an abortion presumably would be at risk under this law. It's a very, very strange kind of duality of things, like not implicating the pregnant person, but also very much implicating them in what happens to, to their decision-making process. Right. Implicates everybody in their life who's supportive of them. Sure. Which is, like you said, very isolating. Very isolating. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about the law and why a lot of aspects of it are problematic. In terms of the next steps, you know, the case is still proceeding in the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I guess from my understanding, the timing of future action is unclear. Do you have any thoughts on what the next steps are and what reactionary measures are taking place? Well, I think certainly there's the expectation that this case will eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. There's another case ahead of it that's going to be heard this fall, which is a a lawsuit out of Mississippi that's challenging Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion. So I think people are really interested to see what the court will decide based on that law. And those of us who who have the luxury of living in and practicing in states that have fairly permissive or even protective laws about abortion, one, you know, we certainly feel a lot of empathy and sympathetic rage with our colleagues in places like Texas and Mississippi. But we're also worried that these efforts exist in every state. The folks who support bills like this, there's an effort to restrict abortion throughout the country. So even if the state that we're in, like Maryland, which has pretty progressive laws, there are efforts here every year, every legislative session to introduce new restrictions in the state. They don't typically go anywhere, but I think there's some concern that maybe, you know, we will start to see abortion access the road, even somewhere like Maryland. Wow. And, and what really, I think is kind of like the cherry on top and like a, an unfortunate cherry, like a rotten maybe cherry on top of this <laughs> entire thing is like, I, I think it's one thing to restrict abortion, but then they're like offering almost like a bounty on catching oh, yeah. people. And I'm like, how, I'm, I'm just like, 
how how did that happen? Like it, it seems like that's that's kind of and there's like a website involved and and you can report people on this website, which is like crazy to me. And for our listeners, there's a website in which you can report. Yeah, like like if you've heard of someone getting abortion in Texas, like just input in their info here and the authorities will follow up or something similar to that. And already this is moving beyond like a decision between a patient and the physician. It's now like the federal government, but now maybe even like the public and their opinion on this whole thing. It's a wild time when right now. <laughs> it really is. And there is one analysis of the law that I listened to recently that apparently this is the precedent for this are laws that were passed after slavery was abolished and oh offered <laughs> offered bounties for people to like find like people of color who had escaped slavery. So, you know, the legal precedent for this harkens back to a really ugly time in our history. Wow. You know, you're you're scraping the bottom of the barrel there. If you have to like yeah. flip through the law book and like finds like, oh yeah, you know, this this yeah. seems okay. Yeah, this is this is good. To be very clear, this is not good. That was just <laughs> facetious, everyone listening. Very clear. So I think this is also a good time to talk about like how do you think our audience can get involved and just kind of voice our opinion or just um, try to make a difference? Yeah, I think there's a number of ways that, that individuals can make a difference. One, you know, just being open about if you are supportive of abortion access. I think sometimes there's, there's so much stigma related to abortion mm-hmm. that it, people are hesitant to even express that opinion. In a more concrete sense, though, I mean, especially focusing on Texas, you know, there are some phenomenal organizations that already have been helping patients in Texas navigate the very restrictive laws, send them money because they have lots of work that they're going to be doing now. Jane's Due Process is one example. There's a number of organizations that have been functioning in Texas for years, and those those are great organizations to support. You know, if you're working in a healthcare environment, you know, just finding out what is your institution's policy or perspective on abortion? Is it available at your institution? And if not, why not? If you are you know, somebody who's in medical training, if you're going into a field where abortion could be part of your scope of practice, offer abortion services. And if you're going into a field where it's not part of your scope of practice, support those who do. You know, Decisions about hospital policy or what kinds of care gets delivered or who gets credentialed at a hospital, you know, People from all different specialties sit on those kinds of committees. So thinking proactively about what are ways that institutions can be supportive of this kind of care. And like I said, the majority of abortions happen outside of a hospital setting. So supporting the independent clinics that actually do the majority of this work. And even those of us who live in progressive states, making sure that our access to abortion is really solidified. Absolutely. Yeah, those are all great great suggestions. And I think something to highlight is, you know, they can happen on a very personal like conversational level between you know, you and someone else talking about your own views and acceptance of abortion, but then kind of lead down this path of more systems level, institutional level. But even even those decisions come down to a conversation and being open and being able to describe your views in a logical, evidence-based way. And so just being curious in your own setting, wherever it may be, is beneficial. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for spending this evening with us, Dr. Robinson, and sharing all of your insight and experience. This has been very eye-opening and helpful for us, and I'm sure for a lot of people. So thank you so much. 
Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And thank you all for having this, this episode and, you know, being, a, being willing to have a pretty frank conversation about a topic that I think scares a lot of people. I think the one of the big takeaways that, that you guys did a great job highlighting is the safety of abortion. You know, it's a common procedure. It should be available to people who want it. And, you know, as you pointed out, there are a lot of myths and misperceptions about abortion, even among people seeking those services. And so really, like you said, challenging those myths when they show up, you know, Abortion is healthcare. It is talked about separately from a lot of other healthcare things, but at the end of the day, abortion is healthcare and people should have access to it. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, Be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time.